You are listening to Your Pod and Your Staff, the podcast of College Life Christian Fellowship at UC Davis. I am Peter Nittler, the college pastor of First Baptist Church in Davis, California, and our mission is to shape college-age people from all spiritual starting points into complete and equipped agents of King Jesus. And on this podcast, we want to have conversations that will form you, encourage you, maybe even make you laugh, and we hope that they would be a source of King Jesus shepherding you. And like a lot of things right now, this particular conversation feels different to me. I'm chatting with a friend, an ex-college lifer, Rafiq Wabi, about race and racism and justice and how the people of God should be responding. And if you've been on any social media site, any news site, or just been awake for the past month, you've heard conversations or had conversations or watched conversations about this topic. And so not many people will bat an eye that there is one more voice adding to the chorus of voices. But I'd imagine that there are some who will bat an eye that this conversation is happening in the church. It feels political. It feels divisive. So maybe this isn't a conversation for the church. Maybe the church should stay in its lane and talk about things like discipleship. And I don't want to step on the conversation, but I'll just say this. We recorded this episode about a week and a half ago, and since then, I found myself thinking more and more that this is a discipleship issue. And sure, it might make us uncomfortable. Sure, we might not all agree. But I mean, the scriptures talk all the time about justice and righteousness and how that particularly plays out in our care for the oppressed. This is a defining feature of the people of God. And so our becoming more like Jesus will absolutely mean beginning to inculcate that reality into our lives. And that will require what all discipleship requires, humility, repentance, forgiveness, reading scripture, praying, partnering with the spirit to transform, maybe slowly, the darkness we see in ourselves. And so here's how I want to start this conversation, that even believing that, this conversation makes me nervous because I'm not sure who it will offend. And as an act of continued discipleship on my end, I'd like to offer this personal repentance that I feel in myself the tendency to prioritize your comfort over your discipleship. There are times when I would rather assure that you are comfortable than to have a conversation that, although difficult and unpredictable, will push us further into the image of God. And that is subpar pastoring. And this conversation with Rafiq is a step toward resisting that tendency in myself and doing something better in leaning into the discomfort and trusting that the Spirit's going with us. So, you're going to love Rafiq. He is a person who has dedicated much of his life to understanding and doing something about these issues, but I can't wait for you to hear him. But lastly, I want to let you know what's happening next. We are doing our first film and theology episode, Podcorn Theology, where we'll be inviting all of you to watch a movie, and we're going to hop on the pod in two weeks and talk about its themes and how it can be put into conversation with the Christian story. And the film we'll be watching is Just Mercy. I'm really excited about it. It'll allow us to continue this conversation and can be found and watched for free on Amazon or YouTube. And with that... Here's Rafiq. We have made it to season two. We are a thing that has multiple seasons, and we are starting this season off with a bang. I have been eagerly awaiting this conversation, and I've been thinking about it a lot, but I am joined with my old friend Rafiq Wabi. Hello, Rafiq. Hello there, Peter. How are you? I'm doing good, man. We're recording this at 7 a.m., just so everyone knows. Yeah, that's when our minds are freshest and most (laughs) supple. I was going to bed last night with dreams of this conversation, and I woke up and I thought, did it already happen? It did not. It did not. We're doing it right now. I'm glad it wasn't a nightmare. (laughs) 
<laughs> Before we get into what we are going to be chatting about today, which is really, really important, but I thought it'd be fun just to catch up a little bit so people know who you are, people know how, how we know each other. So I remember meeting you, I was an intern at College Life, and it was the first event of the year. And Dan Seitz was the college pastor. And the first time I ever heard of you, he was saying your name to invite you up in front of everyone. You were brand new. This was your first ever time in any college life gathering. And he brought you up so people could see you and know your face and basically said, this person is going to be an important part of your lives for the next few years. <laughs> I don't know if he said that. That's what I remember. Then I remember chatting with you in the back of the room after that kind of thing. Oh, okay. I should get to know this guy. I think our conversation covered your passion for comic books. Which I'm wondering, is that still there? It is still there. I don't collect as much. My financial resources don't allow me to do that, but I still read. If it's, it's a uh, little hidden. <laughs> Sorry to out you. Not anymore. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, no, I'm an unashamed nerd. Uh, so I remember I was talking about comic books. I remember I asked you what you're hoping to do with your life or something like that. Hopefully it wasn't that lame of a question. But you said that I think you put the language of I'm interested in like working in public health, specifically with addiction and homelessness. Do you remember that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to it. But that's where you're headed on that trajectory. The same one that you entered Davis with. Uh, what do you remember about our first meeting? Do you remember anything? Yeah. So I was connected through uh, one of my like childhood friends who went to Davis and was a part of college life. And she kind of told me just to check it out. And so I went and yeah, Dan, Dan did bring me up and it was, <laughs> I was like, okay, well, that's fine. And uh, I don't know if you remember this. I biked there yes. and my bike tires both went out. <laughs> just, you know, first like week in Davis, clearly yeah. I'm not a biker. Right. And so I like, I think I waited till the end. I'm like, oh, hey, by the way, like my bike tires went out, you know, could you give me a ride? So you ended up packing my bike in your car and you gave me a ride home. I totally remember that. Uh, that actually might have okay. been when we talked about the comic books. I was on the it, ride back. It was, yeah. it was. And I think I eventually, I gave you some, right, to read? I think you might have. Yeah, you were a college lifer and a pretty prolific one. On my drive here, I was trying to sort of remember your career and it came flooding back. Uh, let me, I'm just going to reminisce a little bit mm -hmm. from my mm -hmm. vantage point of what your time in college life was like. First of all, sure. you were part of this sort of community of people who, like you said, unashamedly nerded. And I remember that there was also a pretty athletic crew at the time. And so you guys had a sports versus esports debate. We did. Yeah. yeah. We had that night where we go play ice hockey or broom ball. Broom ball. Yeah. And all the super athletic guys like just absolutely destroyed <laughs> us. Like it was just so stupid. The Shout out to they Jacob Alameda and Ryan Gross. Yeah. And who else? Max. And we were just like, okay, you guys are flexing. And like, I think I just called them out. And I was like, I was like, yeah, you know what? If we were playing League of Legends right now, we would just wreck <laughs> you guys. And they were like, no, you wouldn't. I bet you we could still beat you at that. Like, okay, let's do it. So we, we set up like a LAN party at our apartment. And of course, we like absolutely destroyed them. Like, I mean, oh, yeah. we've been playing these games for a long time. That's good. So there was that. And then also, you and I, I would consider us Davis heroes. I don't know if you would consider us the same. But there was a restaurant in Davis. That was a revolving door of just restaurant after restaurant after restaurant and nothing could stick. It was right by Bizarro World and mm -hmm. De Vere's. And right now I think it's like a Japanese like mini market. Okay. And finally something came in that was worth our investment, worth our time. And it was called Judy's Grinders. Jeez. And it was <laughs> it was burgers and fries and shakes and all that. And you and I would frequent that spot. I think like once a week. Yeah, once a week for sure. <laughs> and we were trying to keep them in business. I don't think we ever saw anyone else in there. It was so no. good though. Yeah. So we would text each other. Hey, dude, is it time for Jude's Grinds? Also, I think that Katie and my wedding was something special 
for two reasons. One, because Dan Seitz was officiating and he is he's good enough for primetime television. <laughs> and then two, during your time at College Life, there was a no kidding rock band. It was called Pearl and the Boys. Mm-hmm. And it was Pearl Corsetto, who I think was Pearl Snow. She was on mm-hmm. bass. Andrew Bloffus was was on lead vocals. We had Brandon Bonacorsi was on the keys. We had Chris Orm was on electric. And then we had a Rafiq Wabi on the drums. That's right. Pearl and the Boys. And we had you guys play four songs at our wedding that kicked the party off. This is one of the best decisions we've ever made in our entire marriage is having people, (laughs) having this band play. And it was the year of Shut Up and Dance. And so you guys ended with Shut Up and Dance. It was so good. (laughs) I actually was worried people wouldn't be into it. And everyone was into it. Everyone danced to the songs. They sang along. That was awesome. It was super, super awesome. And then also you had a deep legacy of outreach and service in college life. And you would go to or host a Friday lunch for the homeless community in Davis where you just build relationships, get to know people. And at one point, one of those relationships, you found out that someone needed a backpack. Their backpack either got stolen or broke or something mm-hmm. like that. And so you organize an offering in the College Life Lecture Hall, like pass the buckets around. And that kind of thing just doesn't happen a ton in our community. And I don't know if you know, a few episodes back, we were doing a politics and theology episode and mm-hmm. we were mentioning this mystery figure, old college lifer who we're like, this is the kind of political person that we mm. would hope to be and hope to form is people mm. who are not just wrapped up in the identity of national politics, but are getting involved in some meaningful way in what they believe locally with actual people, looking actual sure. people in the eye. And, and you were that person that we were talking about. It's a big reason why we want to have you on for this conversation. But I would love to hear a little bit about once you left Davis, what has your academic journey Yeah. When I entered Davis, I was still on the pre-med route and got connected through an FBC church member, uh, John Chuck, who's the associate dean of the Davis Med School. Really incredible guy and sat down with me and he asked me what I wanted to do. And when I told him, by the end of the conversation, he's like, it doesn't sound like you want to be a physician or go into medicine. It sounds like you want to go into public health. And it was kind of new to me at the time, like exactly what public health was. But I knew I was interested in, you know, a lot of the social factors that play into homelessness and, and substance use. And, you know, I eventually found my way being interested more in public health and medicine. And, you know, public health at its core is is dealing with populations and population level health. And, you know, we try to think of all of the factors that create health, whether they be social, economic, religious. I mean, really, so yeah. many things impact our health and well-being. And so, you know, as public health practitioners and researchers, that's what we do. We try to think about what shapes and creates health. And so after graduating from Davis, I spent one year with the Los Angeles Department of Public Health in their substance use prevention and control department. Mm-hmm. And I was doing like epidemiology work. So just looking at data for all of our substance use treatment centers and kind of got a glimpse of it. Honestly, it wasn't the most interesting work, but it was still a good entryway <laughs> into public health. Yeah. Right. And then after that, I was applying to grad school to do my master's in public health, ended up going to Urbana. It's a missions conference that yeah. university hosts. I had no intention of really spending any time abroad. And I mean, I was hesitant to go to begin with because I was like, I'm applying to grad school. I'm not planning to go anywhere. Right. I right. uh, went to Urbana in the span of like the five or four days there, like ended up by the end the last day, like I signed this card that said, I'm going to go serve across culturally for two years and you know you i came home a card? And- what does that mean is that binding 
No, they pass out a card at the end and they're just like, what are you committing to? And and so you know, I signed up for a two year thing and I went home, told my parents like, yeah, I think I'm going to go serve abroad for a bit. And they're like, oh, OK, like for the summer. And I was like, no, I'm looking at like a two year stint. And um, <laughs> and I ended up uh, spending two years in the Philippines you know, on a really, really incredible team and did some public health research and education there. And that was a really incredible time. But then while I was there, applied again for my master's in public health, got into several schools and then ended up going to Boston University. So I was there the past two years. And while I was there, I did some substance use research out of the hospital. Particularly, we work with peer recovery coaches, people coming out of detox, and then we pair them up with a recovery coach. And what that is, is someone who has lived experience in addiction. And specifically, we our model is we have peer recovery coaches of color, one that speaks Spanish, and then you know trying to bridge the gap. There's a lot of literature that describes these inequities and disparities in communities of color receiving substance use treatment. So kind of worked on that and then also did a mix of interests and passions and work. And uh, I created a hip hop writing class for individuals who are incarcerated um, at a local house of correction. Um, and this was a specific substance use treatment unit. And so, you know, it took me seven months to find a facility that would let me do this. You know, they usually never let you bring in like anything. You can't even bring in like a pen or, you know, paper. You're not allowed to bring anything inside prison or jail. And so I just had a connection and built a really great relationship. And they let me bring in my speaker and a computer and pens and paper. And so then each week I'd go inside and we would listen to a a hip hop song. We'd analyze it, break it down. And then the guys would just share from their own personal experiences. And, you know, the songs they chose, I I made sure that they were in control of what songs we listened to. And a lot of them were socially conscious rappers like Kendrick Lamar, J. Cole or Tupac and, you know, break down what the song is saying. But then how does it relate to their experiences and, you know, focus on topics like uh, addiction and homelessness and past childhood experiences and you know poverty, just the whole gamut of things. And then at the end of the class, they'd have a chance to write their own song or poem or drawing, whatever they want. And then kind of share it with the with the rest of the guys. And so it was a really, really powerful class. And so, you know, that's kind of where I've landed is is being interested in the intersection between substance use, incarceration and race. And I think we'll you know talk about this later on in the podcast. But just looking at the history, those three things are very interconnected and, and are the foundations of, you know, what we you know, called today, like mass incarceration. And, and so I spent a lot of time just reading the history of that, understanding the current situation. And then where do I as a public health researcher and practitioner fit in terms of what, you know, what should I be doing? And what are some of the next steps? And so decided research was one path that I could go and, and take. And so I continuing my PhD at UCLA this fall in community health sciences, and we'll be, you know, researching that hopefully. And yeah, so that's, that's kind of where I'm at now question. How do you feel when you say PhD? I'd have to spend too much time to explain my story, but like I almost failed out of high school. And yeah, dude, I was never the genius or the really smart guy. So it's very weird, honestly. It's one of those journeys in life that I feel like this is God's true providence and hand working in it uh, because there's there's no way I could have pulled this off. So it's really cool. It's really exciting. And one of the things, you know, when I hear it, what it means to me is a whole lot of privilege. And I think we'll talk about that later. But being in academia, having these degrees, it puts me in a position where I have a ton of privilege. People Mm. 
look at me differently. I mean, even already, just when I send out emails and I, you know, under my signature, it says, you know, PhD student, UCLA School of Public Health, that awards me a whole ton of things. So, you know, I've tried to recognize the great power that comes with that and the great privilege and how do I use that and wield that properly. And I'll talk about that later and kind of give a framework for what is what is privilege? What does it mean to have it? How do we use it, especially during this time? Yeah, I feel that even when I, you know, in thinking about producing the podcast and it's like you want to lead with those letters, like you want to lead with this is a person who we should listen to. So that totally makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, so the reason that we're having this conversation and I'm so grateful for your time and your energy in it is that the world feels a lot different talking to you now than it did when I last had the microphone on and we were wrapping up the quarter and wrapping up this first season of this little podcast and mm. obviously no secret but on you know May 25th George Floyd was was murdered on the streets of Minneapolis and the world has been sort of shook to the core mm-hmm. by this protests and riots and conversations about policing and cries for change and cries for this is enough and new conversations about privilege and whiteness and white fragility and conversations that I've heard in the past and heard like a song on the radio it comes on and then, and then it ends you know mm. But I'm not the first to say this. It has felt a little bit different and it has felt like it demands sort of everyone to do some reckoning, no matter where you're at on this particular journey. And so that's sort of what I've been hoping to do, just to enter the conversation. And, you know, something that we do on this podcast and I think just in college life is we try to think theologically, Mm. like what does our story say about X? It's just something that we do. And, you know, I do want to think theologically, but sometimes thinking theologically is also code for thinking abstractly. And so I don't necessarily want to just jump there. Like I I do want to hear the issues and talk about the history and talk about some more concrete things, which I'm hoping that you can help us with. But I recently heard uh, someone talking at a church in Oregon about whiteness. And it was sort of a scathing critique of of whiteness, not necessarily white people, but whiteness as a concept. And and he said, like, I'm going to get pretty fiery. I'm going to get pretty hot. And I'm an Enneagram eight. And so that's part of it. But I'm also pretty angry, you know. So it was funny to lean in to the Enneagram type as a precursor to the conversation, because I am an Enneagram 9. And so this kind of thing is uh, is sort of out of my comfort zone. You know, it's like I already hear voices of dissent of you're saying too much, you're saying too little, you're doing too much, you're doing too little, and don't offend those people. You know, I, I'm already sort of feeling that in my gut. And so it's a different kind of conversation for me. And so I remember when the police station was on fire in Minneapolis, you know, mm. and I remember thinking, I feel this yearning to do something rather than nothing. But I felt so uncomfortable. I'm like, I don't feel like I'm that. I don't feel like I'm a rioter. And I, I at the time, I was like, I don't even think I'm a protester. You know, and mm-hmm. subsequently, Katie and I have been on some marches and stuff. So it's like, I feel more that way now. But it's like, honestly, what I said to Katie is like, I feel like I'm a conversationalist. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's what I feel like I am, like at my core, which is not enough. But I would love to have a real conversation about this. And so I do think that what we're doing right now is sort of in my sweet spot of how I want to respond to things, but also is a little bit of a push because it's outside of my normal, hey, let's not offend anyone attitude. So as a follower of Jesus specifically, I have had an urge to have conversations and learn and interrogate myself and in my assumptions. And so I guess in many ways, Rafiq, I've been wanting to talk to you because you're further down the road, much further down the road than me and thinking about these things. And maybe you weren't quite as on your heels on May 25th as a lot of other people were outraged, I'm sure. But maybe you've done a lot of this thinking already that um, a lot of other people are catching up to. And so we wanted to hear from you. And I want to give a, a few caveats and preliminaries before we get into the conversation. But I would love to hear just even before we get to that, just what did you think and what did you feel on May 25th when you saw the video, heard the news of, of George Floyd? Just take me through your 
your thoughts and just honest processing. Yeah, I think this is something that, you know, people have kind of said this often that these aren't happening, at least as far as we know, like necessary less or more, right? They're just being recorded. We're just seeing it, you know, more often now. Yeah. And that's been happening for you know numerous amount of years now. And so I think it sounds so terrible, but you get a little desensitized to it. You're just like, oh, yeah, it's another one. A police killing a black man. Like, that's, yeah. you know, it's just, it's not like we're numb. I wasn't numb to it. I still feel things, but it's also not like, oh, how could this happen? Like, I can't believe this happened. It's like, I very much can believe this happened. So I think there wasn't surprise, uh, just like, you know, there wasn't surprise to me when Donald Trump was elected president. Like, I think, you know, I think a lot of people were so shocked, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And I was like, oh, I'm, I can definitely believe that. Um, yeah. So I think there wasn't surprise, but, you know, this one is long, right? It's like eight minutes and 36 seconds yeah. of a knee on this man's neck. You know, just straight with none of the police officers at any point thinking like probably shouldn't be doing this. Um, Very little affect. mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just it was very like normal for that police officer. And so that was a little grim and to see that and like, you know, hearing his words. Right. He's just crying out, please stop, please. And he's, you know, at one point he calls out to his mother. And so there was just certain aspects of it that were really challenging. And again, this is coming after the death of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor as well. Both of those just, uh, and you know, for those who don't know about Breonna Taylor, because that one's not talked about as much, she was an EMT in her home sleeping and the police had the wrong address and they went inside and they shot and killed her. So this is coming off of, you know, these three events. So it was really this buildup of things. And so again, I am those seeing these things. You know, I'm a person of color. I was uh, an, an immigrant. I was born in Egypt, but I'm not black. And so that definitely changes the way that I see these things and respond to these things. You know, I don't necessarily feel like my life is in danger when I see these things. But for many other people, for those who are black and they see this, they're like, that could be me. This has happened enough times where... I am not immune to this. And in terms of not just killing, but being stopped by the police, I mean, you know, we've seen it's not just based on your socioeconomic status. Like there are senators who have been pulled over for doing nothing. There are, you know, people, prominent figures who all can share of these stories. And so I think there was a boiling point of just like, again and again and again it happens and so that's kind of you know the initial thoughts that i had yeah yeah and even being at the protests and the power of just saying saying the names you know and Mm -hmm. this is so cliche but i do think having a child now it's like your Mm -hmm. imagination grows a little bit my imagination Mm -hmm. has grown of thinking like what would it be like to fear for his life i never do so so anyway, and I know one thing that you do and, and you offer is that, um, like I said, you're you're further down the road in thinking about a lot of the issues surrounding this conversation and that you sort of offer to help people get the conversation started and you walk people through some basics of what's going on kind of mm-hmm. historically and culturally and socially. And so I'm hoping to hear some of that content from you. And before we do, I just wanted to be clear about a few things from my end. And I don't know if these are caveats or if they're hopes or if they are calls for grace. I don't know exactly what they are, but um, I just wanted to share a few things before we kind of got the conversation started from my end. And the first is this, is that I am approaching this as a learner. And I don't know exactly if that needs to be said, but I guess I'm the host of this podcast. And so sometimes I'm coming with content, you know, and I just want it to be clear that that I'm coming as a learner and I've been very aware of my own assumptions and sort of heart postures and mental processes. And I am looking for chances to learn as opposed to for me to come in and speak what I think. So just by nature of having done some thinking, I'll probably have some thoughts and those thoughts might come in the form of a question. And 
those questions might be exactly where I'm at right now, or it might be, hey, I remember when I also thought this and kind of thinking it might be helpful to talk about these kinds of things. But the questions, just to be clear, are not questions of argument or of trying to persuade, but seeking to understand. And then also in sort of my hopes too, it's like, I think there's been two metaphors that I've had in my mind thinking about this conversation. And the first is thinking about sort of fluency and language. And I think in many ways, it feels like these kinds of conversations, it feels like I'm learning a new language that my experience last month has felt like I sort of know the words of this, like I sort of know some of the vocabulary of this new language, but I don't know how to like speak it really well. And so it can be intimidating to have a conversation about it because it's like, I'm not fluent, you know, like I might know enough to get around the city that I'm in. I'm not fluent and I'm aware of that. And I feel like sometimes when you are learning a new language, you just kind of have to speak it, you know, you kind of have to go forward, but you know, you might mess up. You might say the wrong thing. You might not have the right emphasis on the right syllable. You might have the wrong accent, you know, all sorts of stuff. But I think it's been a helpful metaphor for me to think that you, Rafiq, are just more fluent in this language than I am. And so I want to learn from you and I'm inviting you whenever you hear me trying to speak this language to be like, oh yeah, you should put the emphasis on that syllable. But also the way that fluency and language also interact is that there are people who are less fluent than me who might be sort of offended by how I speak. Um, or there are people who are more fluent than me who might be kind of not being able to understand what I'm saying. And uh, again, I'm excited to hear someone speak more fluently, I guess. Mm. And and then the second metaphor that I've had in my mind is just that of sight and vision. And, you know, I've been listening to the Bible Project podcast series on apocalypse, and it's been refreshing to reclaim that word from the clutches of end of the world speak and to remember and realize again that the word doesn't mean anything about the end of the world. The word apocalypse means basically seeing clearly, like having the veil pulled back on reality and seeing actually reality for what it is. And because of that, I feel like this moment, this cultural moment has been apocalyptic. Like, I feel like what's happening is that many people's eyes are being opened to realities that they did not see before, that the reality actually looks different than they had initially thought. And sometimes it's really beautiful when you see reality, but sometimes it's really ugly to see this is reality, like this is true, like when you wake up from the matrix kind of thing, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, oh, this is the world, the real world, yeah. but we still need to see it. And so mm -hmm. all that to say, my hope for this conversation is that I would be seeing things more clearly, that the college life community would be seeing things more clearly, seeing reality more clearly, and that whoever happens to be listening, that what would, what would happen by the end of this conversation is that our eyes would be open to the reality of, of pain and of hurt. And, you know, there's two passages that have come to my mind. So in the Gospel of Mark, there's this blind man named Bartimaeus who just calls out to Jesus in this, like, he screams at him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And people try to shut him up. And he screams out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he's, he's blind. He's desperate. And Jesus comes up to him and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, I want to see. And obviously he's blind, so he wants to physically see. But it's like, I feel that way too. It's like, I want to see clearly. And I feel like sometimes I struggle with really landing on what I feel like is true. It's like, I feel like I feel tossed to and fro a lot of times by what I think might be true. But so I'm hoping that we follow that Bartimaeus example we want to see clearly but also in psalm 139 this verse has been also on my mind that the, the psalmist says search me O god and know my heart try me and know my thoughts and then he says and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in life everlasting and that idea of search me and, and see if there's anything grievous in me you know that is that's an impulse that's in the scriptures of being self-skeptical thinking maybe there's something in me that might be off and the way that things that seem normal to me 
might be off. And so I need you, God, to search me and see if there's anything grievous in me. And so that's another hope that sort of is involved with seeing clearly. But that is sort of my hopes for these things. And, and just some preliminaries that I'm coming as a, a learner and a question asker. And the questions might not be the right questions. But um, it's in my trying to learn this language and become more fluent. I guess I'm saying I, I might sound dumb. And, um, <laughs> and that my hope, though, is that we see more clearly. Those are my thoughts <laughs> as, we, as we enter into the conversation. Maybe this question will produce fruit or maybe we'll just go on down to right where you generally start with people. But I'd be interested to know, like, when did you really start to get interested in issues of race and justice and the nexus of the two? Was it when you started your studies or did you start your studies that way because you had this interest that was brewing in some other fashion? Yeah, for many people of color, I think it really starts from personal experiences. So, you know, growing up, you know, there's this this terminology that's used, you know, being culturally liminal. Liminality is kind of like this in-between space. So, you know, I grew up in, in this context of being in between, you know, my Egyptian identity and culture of my family and then the American culture that I was, you know, kind of being raised in. And so from an early age, really as early as fifth grade, um, you know, I was thinking about race. I was thinking about ethnicity. What does it mean? You know, uh, my earliest example that I give is, uh, you know, I think this was in like third or fourth grade where growing up in the Egyptian church and it's a, it's much more conservative and the Egyptian culture is just much more conservative, especially when it comes to romantic things. You know, you don't have like a, a male and a female or never in the same room alone. And so when I went to uh, American church for the first time, I saw like a third grade couple, like they were holding hands. And I think I asked and they're like, yeah, that's, that's boy, their boyfriend and girlfriend. And I was like shocked by that. I was like, what? <laughs> like. Yeah. It's like, I'm not, I'm not supposed to do that till I'm like 30. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Total joke. But, you know, it was a shock for me. And this was at church too. So at a very early age, I had to process, well, so my culture says that, you know, this is not what we do. But then I came to church and saw, you know, these, you know, white Americans doing this. And so at, at the age of nine, 10, I had to process like, is one right and one is wrong or can both be right? Is it just different ways of doing things? Like, mm-hmm. is there a hierarchy, a moral value associated? I mean, these are like pretty complex things that I think I had to wrestle with at a young age. And, you know, and then experiencing some more personalized attacks and um, I was in sixth grade when 9-11 happened. And, and so I had people, you know, coming up to me that day and, you know, just thanking me. They're like, oh, thanks, Rafiq. Thanks for, you know, you know, bombing our country or whatever. And, you know, being super confused by that because I was like, I didn't I didn't do that. And, you know, having to recognize that, like, I belong to a people group and that I am associated with them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, from an early age, a lot of people who, who are not white are really forced to think about these things. And, you know, I think I chose to engage in it and wrestle with it. And, um, you know, had some other like, you know, experiences throughout the years where, you know, in high school, I reached a boiling point where some guys were making fun of me. And just I told my youth pastor at the time, like, I wish I wasn't Egyptian. Like, I wish I was just white. Yeah. Um, that was a very monumental time because it was like, I mean, fully acknowledging my identity and then not wanting to have it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's where it started is, you know, having individualized experiences. And I think one of the issues was, you know, growing up in the white evangelical church, um, this wasn't something that's talked about very much. Um, yeah. What the, the main thing that's promoted, of course, there are you know, exceptions, but main thing that's promoted when when this conversation does come up is more the concept of colorblindness, right? That, right. you know, we don't see color. And, you know, there are passages like, you know, there's neither man nor woman, Jew nor Gentile. And that's interpreted to be like, no, no, our identity is found in Christ and everything else is kind of 
not important. It's null. It's nullified. You know, once you become a Christian, it's like you're stripped of those things. And now you're, you're a daughter or a son of Jesus. Yeah. The argument is trying to make primary identity, but it, sometimes mm-hmm. it, we overstep and say this is your only identifying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the bulk of the conversation. And I was just like, I don't I don't see that. Like, I mean, I don't I don't experience that. And I see so much beauty in my identity and in my culture as being an Egyptian Christian and in the history of the Egyptian church, which, you know, is really, really old. And so I think I had to start, you know, finding ways to think about these things theologically. And so I I was blessed to have, you know, mentors, uh, mentors of color who were thinking about these things, who were studying these things. And. Um, really to learn from them of what does it look like to have a framework that that says like the Bible does talk about these things, that Jesus does care about these things. And there are plenty of examples. And it was kind of one of those things where, and this is my approach, and I'm not a theologian, um, so maybe this is heretical. I don't know. But I read scripture and I've grown up and I went to church and and then I kind of look at life, I look at what's going on, and then I look back at scripture and I'm, I'm constantly this like feedback mechanism of, mm. you know, is what I'm reading, what because I, I believe everything I read from scripture is very much through, you know, the lens of my social political environment. And, and so I'm seeing it through particular lenses. And so when I read that, and then I look at life and see, you know, the outcome of the things I've learned, does it match? Does it make sense? I think looking back at some of those passages through a different lens and to say, that's not what neither Jew nor Gentile, that's not what it means. What it means is like those things at the very least cannot separate us from the love of God, right? Like that, that's, it's like, it's a very low standard. It's saying like, you, you cannot use these things as separation. It's not saying like that, you know, you're, you're, you're cut off from that, you know, just trying to see the language of what, when it's talked about, you know, what is the picture? What is the narrative? What is like, where are we aiming towards? And, you know, what we're aiming towards is these groups coming together in one body, right? It's not like a melding, molding, like we become this like sludge of, you know, all these, you know, people like, no, it's, it's, it's the Jews and the Gentiles coming together in their respective cultures under yeah. the umbrella of worshiping God. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, that's that's definitely been, you know, a shaping point. And then I started to, you know, pursue it much more, you know, academically and thinking about it in the work and just seeing in, in areas like substance use and home. I mean, homelessness is one of those things. It's like just the most in your face kind of systems where the representation of people who are black um, and Latinx in the homeless population is just so overrepresented, you know, versus how much are in just the general population. And so you see that really in across a whole bunch of different things. And in public health, you know, we're trying to see what causes those things. And yeah. so I, you know, start to apply uh, some more like academic approaches, statistical modeling, those kinds of things to better understand uh, race and racism, like in, in my field of interest. Yeah. The verse you're referencing, there's not, neither Jew nor Gentile, is in Galatians. And kind of your point of like, it's not saying that those things don't exist. It's just that those are no longer reasons to have any separation, like that there's a, a unity in fellowship with Christ, you know? And it's interesting because in that verse too, it also says like neither male nor female. And it's funny because I think most people want to, you know, say those things exist, you know, yeah, in this right. world. So it is interesting because maybe we hear the Jew Gentile thing as a sort of religious identifier, but that was really a race ethnicity conversation, mm-hmm. maybe even, I mean, tied up with religion as well. Right. Yeah. I think sometimes we miss that when mm-hmm. we read the New Testament. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like it talks about racism as much, but it's like, if you, once you see Jew Gentile is a, is a racist conversation, it's like, dang, this is everywhere, you know, Yeah. in the epistles and everywhere. So anyway, 
I remember you telling me the story about not wanting to be Egyptian again. And mm. honestly, I think that was one of the first times I've thought like people really think this kind of thing. You know, it's like, mm. you know, there's just stages of development, you know, and it's like right. maybe it was late for me to think that. But it's like, oh, mm. it's like how horrible to think mm-hmm. something like that. Thank you for sharing. And so I would love to know, I think you've probably even jumped into it a little bit, but when you try to help people understand this cultural moment or you help try to help people maybe even get more fluent if we continue that metaphor of of how to understand the things that you're in, involved in and interested in and just are happening in America right now or have mm-hmm. happened. I'm talking like history of racism and mass incarceration. I'm talking, I don't know, systemic racism, those types of things, the the terms involved. Like where do you start? How do you bring people into these kinds of conversations? Yeah. So if, if I'm speaking to a Christian audience, I the first thing I start with is the theological foundation and framework for understanding these things, because it is important for us as Christians to know that the gospel talks about this, that this is yeah. in line with the gospel. And so I think I have to start there for multiple reasons. Uh, one, because this is my foundation. This is where I'm starting from. And unfortunately, you know, it oftentimes gets conflated with, you know, whenever I start speaking about these things, people are just like, oh, you're you're a brainwashed liberal or, you know, yeah. you're whatever, social justice warrior. And I, I probably am some <laughs> both of those things to some extent, but <laughs> yeah. we're all brainwashed a little bit. But I do want people to know that like what I'm about to say really is grounded and rooted in my faith and that. Um, I believe this is a mandate, you know, as a Christian, as, as what it means to follow Jesus is to pursue anti-racism. And um, and I'll, I'll describe what that is in a little bit. But so I start off from there and there's usually two passages that I go to uh, uh, Ephesians 2 and Galatians 2. Um, and Ephesians 2 talks about, you know, this dividing wall of hostility between, you know, the Jews and the Gentiles. It says how God broke that down. And, you know, what it took for him to break that down was through the death of Jesus. Hmm. And, you know, I see this as like as a kind of vision of moving forward of like, what does it take for us to continue the work? Right. Because we believe as Christians, we're trying to bring you know heaven here on earth. And what does it mean for us to continue to break down these dividing walls of hostility? And one is it takes sacrifice and it is not pretty. I mean, the death of Jesus, as we know, is not this like nice, tidy thing. Like, I mean, yeah. it was messy. It was bloody. It was, you know, painful. Yeah. Um, and so the the term is, you know, often used racial reconciliation. And I have some issues with that term. But like, you know, oftentimes it kind of looks like, you know, two people of different races kind of coming together and be like, I'm sorry. OK, I forgive you. I'm, I'll do better. But, you know, like the death of Jesus on the cross, that to me resembles what I believe the work looks like in pursuing mm-hmm. racial justice. It it really looks like dying to ourselves. And so there's that. And then, you know, that passage is also, it's very clear about, again, these two uh, coming together in, in the body. So it's, it's, it's kind of still, they're still distinct entities uh, yeah. coming to the body. Uh, and then the second passage is uh, Galatians 2, where uh, Paul approaches Peter and, you know, Peter's kind of gone in, in the past couple chapters, you know, in Acts 10, he kind of had this whole moment and, and you know, recognizing, you know, God was calling him to go preach the good news to the Gentiles. And he uses this, this really weird dream with all these, you know, animals to eat. And, you know, Peter's like pretty weird out by it, but he kind of starts to like make the connection that essentially, and, and I know this sounds weird, but God was calling out Peter's racism, that Peter did, did not want to bring the message to the Gentiles. And... Uh, you know, the term that was used for the animals was that, that the animals were unclean. But I think the link was, is that Peter thought that the Gentiles were unclean mm-hmm. and they needed to adopt our customs, right? Mm-hmm. They needed to be you know, circumcised and all of these things. 
And at the end, you know, Peter kind of has this moment. He's like, I realize like nothing that God has made is unclean and that, you know, the Holy Spirit is going to work through all people, not just the Jewish people. So he has this like epiphany in this moment. And then, you know, a couple chapters later, uh, you know, he, you know, he's in Antioch and he's ends up separating himself from the Gentiles. He, you know, he doesn't associate with them. And it says like, you know, people start to follow him. And yeah. so Paul comes in the scene and he's he's kind of pissed. And he says in front of everyone in public, Paul calls him out on this. And he, you know, what he says to him is he says, what you're doing is not in line with the gospel. And I think that's a really powerful line that Paul says, because, you know, when we think of gospel, oftentimes we think of just what is, you know, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And, you know, we repent and, you know, we go to heaven. You know, it's a simplified version. Yeah. And so when he says you being racist is not in line with the gospel is a really powerful thing, because that to me tells me that being anti-racist and publicly speaking out against racism is in line with the gospel. So I start with those two, you know, there's a whole bunch of other things and I'm not, you know, I'm not a theologian. There are other people who do this much better than I do. But I start with those two to at least give a foundation that scripture does talk about this and that it's not like, I don't see it as an optional thing, right? When we talk about preaching the gospel, part of that is being anti-racist, that that's one of the things that it means to, to live out the gospel. Um, it's not like an optional thing. It's not like I can, I'll, you know, I'll love my neighbor, but I won't call out racism. I actually believe uh, to truly, you know, follow what the gospel teaches us, we we have to pursue all of those things. Um, so that's where I start. I start with a theological foundation. And then I usually move to like some terms and definitions, um, you know, just describing uh, what does the word race mean? Uh, it's, yeah. you know, this really complicated thing and it's a social construct. And, you know, what does a social construct mean? And I usually give the analogy of money. Money is a social construct, right? It's uh, it's this piece of paper that has absolutely no inherent meaning, but yeah. uh, the meaning that we have decided to give to it. And right. just because it inherently doesn't have meaning and we've created it and we've given meaning to it doesn't mean that it doesn't have real implications and real impact, right? Like money is really important. Like if I go into my wallet and rip up all my dollar bills and be like, <laughs> this doesn't mean anything. I'm like, no, I just lost money. Yeah. Like I can't pay for lunch. Well, I remember as, as a kid, I remember thinking, I don't get it. I don't mm-hmm. get if you don't have money, why don't you just print more money? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I remember like just, that just did not make sense to me. Like the, yeah. the construct didn't make sense, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. But similarly, race, you know, as a social construct is it really is this thing that we have created as humans and that was really rooted in creating, you know, a social hierarchy of, mm-hmm. you know, meaning and of value and of worth. And so it is made up, right? Just to say the skin color of someone is different, has any sort of meaning is is like nonsense. It doesn't. Yeah. The reality is, is that it has real impacts because yeah. it's now so deeply ingrained in our culture and society. Yeah. So just like we're not going to, we can't just say like, we're just not going to do the whole money thing tomorrow or I'm not going to see money. Just like you would say, I'm not going to yeah. see race. Yeah. You can't do that, right? Yeah. Like you're going to go to the store and someone's going to be like, all right, that's $5.99. You're like, I don't see money. Yeah, so I disagree. Uh, yeah, I, I beg you. No, I just don't. It's like, <laughs> yeah. okay, you can't have this item. Do you think it's fair to say race is a socially constructed reality and that it was socially constructed by powerful Europeans? Yeah. Like and people, you know? Right. Yeah, I do think so. And I, I'm also not a historian, but from what I understand, right, it really did start and they were trying to make, you know, certain biological claims. Mm-hmm. Um, there also, this is, you know, at the time where we're talking about 
um, you know, like Darwinism and different theories of evolution. And so, you know, some people wanted to make the claim initially that, you know, in the Old Testament, when there's the different descendants and one of the lines was cursed and, you know, they're they're trying to make the claim that like that was black people because there's like a line in there. It says something about dark hued skin or something like that. And so a group of, you know, this is predominantly Christians, you know, were promoting this idea that 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 meant that the cursed people were Africans. And then there was another line of thinking that, no, they actually descended from a different group of people and that different group of people is lesser than. And then and then there's whole biological theories of, you know, that like their brains are smaller and, you know, a whole bunch of other distinctions that are made. But at the root of them, they were distinctions made uh, to create, you know, social and power hierarchy by, you know, white dominant societies. Yeah. So you started with the theological claims, and that's sort of refreshing for me to hear. You know, this is part confessional, part just here's what I've been thinking. One thing that, you know, I've seen floating around a lot is these really well-produced, like almost like syllabi of sort of how to become an anti-racist because there's so much to read or watch or listen to. It's like for someone to say, hey, let me help you. You know, here's some things to aim yourself at. And I don't know, I guess maybe being in the quote unquote character formation business as a pastor, you know, I'm interested in people forming themselves into more and more like Jesus, you know, to be formed into that image. Mm -hmm. And historically, the way that that's been done and systematized is called a catechism. It's Mm. like you go through a catechism, a sort of learning process of what does it mean to become a follower of Jesus? And that has often not so much in the evangelical church, but has been pretty systematic. You know, it's, it's been a process. It's been read this and do this. And Mm. I think that's awesome. But so I've sensed in some, some of the, like how to become an anti-racist stuff that it looks like a catechism. It looks like, Mm. you know, do these things, read these things, listen to these things, watch these things, and you'll become this kind of person. Mm. And the, quote unquote, this kind of person is an anti-racist. It's not necessarily, obviously, a follower of Jesus, who by definition as a follower of Jesus should be an anti-racist. And of course they wouldn't because they're, they're not always starting from a Christian perspective, you know, so I'm not expecting that to be the case. But I've sometimes had hesitancy of just like, well, what am I doing if I sort of follow this quote unquote catechism? Is that even fair to say? And what are some of the, I don't exactly know the right word. It's not dangers, but pitfalls pitfalls or it's like i guess what i want and i'm longing for is for an articulation of why to be an anti-racist from the formation of a person into the image of jesus that the sort of the lists of things to read and think about and do aren't starting from a here's how you become a better follower of jesus it's how do you become an anti-racist so i guess i'm i'm wondering from your vantage point how aligned are those things all the time do you consciously think of yourself as you're engaging in this work doing it as a follower of jesus i know that um, a lot of the language comes from, I don't know enough about it to speak intelligibly, but comes from critical race theory, um, mm-hmm. which comes from critical theory, which I, this is dangerous to say, I guess, but it's like, is a sort of Marxist idea. And so how much when you're engaging in this work and even learning, are you sort of consciously aware of it flowing from your commitment to Jesus? And how much does that matter? And it's sort of outsourcing, you know, it's like, well, I do know that like becoming an anti-racist is part of what I hope to be as a Christian. And a lot of these other people have done a lot of really good work and good thinking about it. So I'm sort of outsource my thinking to them. Or should it be, no, no, I don't want to outsource because it's like that's coming from potentially a different source. Like that has a different potential aim and end where it's like, I still want my end and aim and foundational core to be, I want to be a follower of Jesus first and foremost. And so is it as easy as just outsourcing our thinking to others or should we be doing more in-house thinking, I guess? Does any of that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, And I guess it goes back to what I said before of like this, this kind of feedback mechanism loop of, you know, trying to look back. And so like, I read something by, 
you know, someone who maybe is not a Christian, and then I look back at scripture, and I'm kind of looking back and forth, and trying to understand, like, well, how does scripture think about this? I guess, you know, for me, the Bible was written 2000 years ago, it was written before a lot of different forms of thought, um, you know, it was written before a whole range of philosophy was developed. And so it doesn't talk about certain things. I mean, like, realistically, like the concepts of race and ethnicity were not very explicit in, in scripture. So I'm, I'm much more okay with things growing on its own. And I guess I can ask myself, like, is there something about this that is inherently not in line with the gospel or with what scripture says? And, you know, that's that's a conversation that can be had. I didn't know there was such a strong pushback against and I'm not saying you are pushing back, but uh, th this is like a commonly held pushback against like critical race theory uh, from Christians. I, I never really knew that because I've read a ton of it. I'm just like, oh, I, don't, I don't see anything. Yeah, wrong right. Sure. This yeah. <laughs> at all. Yeah. Um, and so I have asked my friends and, you know, and if people who are listening to this are interested in that, my friend created a, a great list of resources by, you know, Christian theologians and professors who um, talk about thinking about critical race theory. And also, unfortunately, those three things are conflated a ton. So Marxism, critical theory and critical race theory, uh -huh. um, which, you know, critical race theory is it maybe is like a derivative and comes from, you know, has some applications from critical theory, but it, it is pretty different. But, you know, I do think it's, you know, it's kind of one of those things where like some of the complex theories in public health, I'm not going to find that explicitly in scripture. But, you know, are there things and themes that are underlying it that you know we do find in scripture so in critical race theory there is you know a core tenant of you know valuing people let's say mm -hmm. and i believe that's evident in scripture so mm -hmm. i guess for me and this is also just me being honest right now like i think you know i you know i in in where i'm at with my faith and where i'm at with like the relationship with the church i think is you know been has been pretty strained and so I'm not really looking to the church right now to answer some of these questions because they, you know, I've ignored it for so long. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm like, I'm kind of on the ground. I'm like, we need to do something because, you know, police officers knees are on people's necks. And I don't think a lot of the churches engage in this conversation enough in that I'm not looking to them for how to think through this. But it also doesn't mean I'm not looking, I'm not looking introspectively and praying about it. But I do think a lot of the thought doesn't come from the things that I read and things that I do are not coming from necessarily Christian writers. But I do hope I'm trying to, you know, still keep that in line. I guess I don't think about it like so binary, like it's either yeah. yes or no. Yeah, I'm even hearing my question a little more clearly as you respond. Mm -hmm. Part of my question is a lament and repentance of like, hey, if it's true that maybe Christians should, like it, it would be better to have a lot of this content be coming from like Christian people, then the only place we can look is at ourselves like, hey, where has it been? So mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well, you can't wait for it. If there's justice to be done, you can't just wait. Okay, then some Christian needs to write a book for me to right. really believe it. So, and I do, I do wonder though. It it actually has though. Like, and that's that's the trippy thing is, I just never knew about a lot of these people. I didn't know who James Cone was. Yeah, you know? right. I didn't. There's yeah. a ton of you know people who've written you know the whole field of liberation theology like that have written about this, but. Um, I was, I've never, I never heard anyone at church my whole time growing up mention any, you know, any black theologian or anything like that. Like mm -hmm. all hearing, you know, I heard Tim Keller's name a ton and, you know, he's great. He's awesome. I, I love Tim Keller, but part of it too is like, it's not that it doesn't exist, but we just, we weren't focusing on it and talking about it. And so it is partially too, I think going back and, and, you know, reading, you know, some, some of these things that people have been writing about for, you know, years and years. And that is cool because, you know, we have been as a Christian people, we have been talking about these things. Um, yeah. It's just hasn't been centered, I think.
Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if we're gonna let's say come to a conclusion, even to ask the question more clearly <laughs> and then move mm. on from it. But yeah. it would be like, what sort of holistic person are you becoming if and when you aim yourself at particular philosophies and ideologies? And I agree with you that if you aim yourself at becoming more like the person of Jesus, that's not just gonna exclude other thought worlds, you right. know? But it's like it's sort of still like what person do I wanna become? And so it's like mm. if I wanna be an anti racist I still want to do it in the Jesus way, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I still want to be becoming that person. And I'm going to hopefully be learning from these other people who have been thinking about it and doing things. Sure. But it feels like that's a, a little bit of a difference than simply saying that, okay, there's this, I guess, school of thought about becoming an anti-racist and I'm just going to substitute it in. Well, and you, you know, something you're saying that is, you know, maybe, maybe this answers it a little bit too, is like part of the thing I would question is, you know, when you say like, you know, want to do it, you know, the, the Christian way or something like that. I would question and challenge, well, what has informed the Christian way? And like, yeah. um, certainly we can argue how this is done, but I, I still think no matter what, we can't separate our upbringings and our environment from yeah. what we perceive as the Christian way. So like I've heard before, like, oh yeah, we should speak out against racism, but we have to do it, you know, with, with kindness and love and patience. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but what that could also mean is to like silence the voice of, yeah. you know, someone who's angry or, you know, enraged. Yeah. And that to me is not the Christian way. That's, that's the white way. Yeah. So how do we, yeah. you know, separate things that we sometimes conflate as the Christian way, the evangelical way, the white way or whatever else it is. Um, so that's one thing I am, I try to be careful of, you know, and that's why I think when you read some of these other, you know, writers, I would read and be like, oh, that doesn't sound very Christian. And it's like, oh, maybe it is. It's just not the type of Christian that I, I've been used to. Dude, totally. I think maybe even that's what I, I'm interested in probably an impossible task of trying to draw these lines of like, when is mm. something like critical race theory or just another, even a movie, even just some, like a movie can speak prophetically, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and be a critique of the way the church is being the church. I feel like probably what I'm hoping for <laughs> is to just get a surgical knife and say, I'm going to cut out this part of whatever is the different philosophy and say, hey, this is telling us something about who we should be. And it's not coming from within the church, but it's still truth coming to us. And so I want to mm -hmm. take that let it change me and then continue on my way and then like leave out the stuff that is antithetical, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's just, it takes a ton of wisdom. Yeah. Gosh, this is why it's so fun to have conversations. Cause it's like, I've been thinking about that question for like yeah. three weeks and it's not until actually asking it and sort of yeah, talking about it that it. I feel like I realize that it's like, Oh yeah. It's like, I'm dealing with this dynamic of, I do think that outside influences can speak prophetically to the church. Mm -hmm. You know, like God uses Babylon to teach right. Israel lessons. They are mm -hmm. the antithesis of what God hopes for in the world. Sure. You know, when you talk to people, you go through some of the theological points and then you start defining terms. And I think so yeah. far you've, we've defined race as a socially constructed reality right. that mm -hmm. is not real in that it actually exists as a law of nature, you know, but right, is right. very real in, in its impact in the world. Yeah, you right. know? And so what else, where else do you go with me? Yeah. Yeah, and this is a good time to to mention. I really recommend um, Ibram Kendi's uh, "How to Be Anti-Racist," and he he has he does a very great job of laying out a lot of these definitions, like in one sentence. Um, and I say in simple terms, but it's not 
it's not like he's dumbing it down. It's just like he's so eloquent in his words, he's able to like just nail it on the head in one sentence very clearly. So I, I really recommend his book for, yeah. for a lot of these, you know, terms and terminology. And, um, and so, you know, then he, you know, he also talks about, you know, how we understand things, you know, like racist policies is one of the things he talks about and uses that framing instead of structural racism and mm. whatever we, this is, you know, wording and stuff like that, but there are differences. And, you know, he, he tries to say, right, that when we talk about, there's this individual level racism that I think is often where people go to. And what their racist policies are is that they are what, you know, ends up creating the inequities and they're, they're embedded systems that end up creating these differences. Um, and so I usually, I show this video. Um, it's very, very simple. And it's, it's like a structural racism explained this little cartoon. It just helps describe like what that means, like how a policy can be made oftentimes very explicitly racist. Um, okay. Sometimes it's not, but how this policy then can then cascade down and create inequities. And so, you know, one of the most common ones used is the, the concept of redlining, which was, you know, a practice used where, you know, cities would say like there's certain sections that maybe there were more black people that lived there and those sections were not allowed to receive, you know, loans. And so if you're not allowed to receive a loan, you can't buy a house. And if you can't buy a house, you can't live in a certain area. Yeah. You can't live in a certain area, right? Where do schools get their money? They get them from income tax. So if you live in an area with, you know, houses that don't cost a lot of money, then your school is less funded. So right. So all of these things kind of cascade down. And so that's that's what we kind of think about, you know, in terms of racist policies. And so I, I kind of describe that distinction. And then I kind of use this analogy of you know, we have this word racist, right? Or racism. It's this one word. And we try to use this one word. And this is, you know, a, a concept that's explained by the critical race theorists that it, we have this one word that we're trying to describe a whole bunch and a whole mm. spectrum of different things. So yeah. and the analogy I use is cancer. So if, you know, if I go into uh, to go see my doctor and he tells me, he's like, oh, you have cancer, you know, I'd like to be, okay, what kind of cancer do I have? And yeah. he's like, you have cancer. I'm like, okay, where is it? And he's like, it's in your body. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay, how, you know, what's the prognosis? And he's like, the prognosis is whatever the prognosis is for cancer. Okay, well, what medication do I take? You take cancer medication, right? It's not, it's not very helpful. Like, I don't, I don't know anything about anything. Like, I just know cancer is bad. I know I yeah. can die from it. And I know that at its core, cancer is like the constant proliferation of cells, you know, that can be, be very damaging and could spread. Mm. But each different type of cancer functions completely differently. They're localized differently. They spread in, you know, at different rates. They require different medications and different procedures. All, you know, they're all so, and there's thousands of them yeah. or hundreds of them. And so the same is true of the word racism is that we have this one word to describe so many different things. And it's really not helpful because being a KKK member is racist. And, and at the same time, Someone coming up to me and saying like, you know, thanks for bombing, you know, us Rafiq as an Egyptian. That's also racist. But these are two very different things. Like one of them is a group of people trying to like ex exterminate a group of people. And one is like, you know, something else that's individual and, you know, whatever else. So I think that's one other concept. And there's this pyramid that kind of describes overt white supremacy in terms of like the KKK and, you know, saying the N word and all these other things. And then there's a whole bunch of other things that kind of fall under the category of what white supremacy can look like. And I, I just try to use that to say, 
we need to mix up our language a bit. We need to be more precise. We need to be, um, you know, it's just the, the semantic range of the word racist and racism is just, it's, it's too much and it's not helpful. And so I try to explain that, that there's, there's a whole bunch of complexity because, you know, people are like, how is that racist? That's not racist. And so it's, I think at its core, you know, being racist is to, you know, make a value distinction by race and, you know, to create some sort of thing that, you know, causes inequity and that can come out in so many different forms. So I try to, you know, explain and describe that. And then I kind of wrap up by, you know, just giving a brief history of, you know, what racism in America specifically has looked like. What has that context been like? And there's this idea that, you know, it's just so deeply embedded from such a long time ago. And so what ends up happening is, you know, you can look back and see how certain laws and policies were written, and they were written with very explicit racist intentions. So, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act, you know, that was very much designed to eliminate Chinese individuals from the U.S., people immigrated from China. The senator came to say and describe the policy. That's what he said. He said, like, I don't want Chinese people here. We want them out. You know, it was very explicit. Right. When we had one from slavery, we said, well, we're going to consider them, you know, three fifths of a human. Right. So right. they're very explicitly racist. But what happens is, is the laws and policies that were created under that time. I mean, some of them exist till today. And so some years have passed and the language and then the maybe the way it's talked about has changed. But the underlying narrative has not changed. The underlying narrative of like exceptionalism and white nationalism and white supremacy, those are still there. And so, you know, in the U.S., you kind of track it to, you know, slavery and then Jim Crow laws and then, you know, mass incarceration. Right. Like we use this as a way to say the system is, is changing and the language is changing, but the outcome is the same. The outcome is that. We constantly see, you know, economic disadvantage. We see uh, workplace disadvantage. We see, you know, disparities and inequities in health. Uh, we see it in, in practically every arena. And that exists because the narrative has not really changed. The, the policies, the names maybe have changed. And now our focus is on, you know, talking about crime and safety and, um, you know, war on drugs and all of these things. But really, it's still meant to do the same thing. It's meant to yeah. be a system of control. And, and and some people have called it, you know, a system of elimination. And, and I believe that to be true. I believe that, you know, the language we use can change, but the intent, the meaning behind it um, has not changed very much. Yeah, I remember I, I took a class with this guy at Fuller, and he was a pastor of this church that sounded really cool to me. And mm. I think it was in St. Paul. Um, Mm. it's called the table and I was looking up one of his sermons conversations and it was on race at the time. And he, he had this guy come and talk and someone said like, Hey, what do I, what should I do? Should I move into a community of color to sort of incarnate myself? And he was like, don't do that. Don't do that. You got, you gotta like really earn some trust. And then he's like, here's something that's interesting. He's like the guy who was speaking was referring to a, a friend of his who was an author. And this friend said, there's some fluency that you basically need before you can really engage really well in these kinds of conversations. It's like, if you cannot trace a straight line from slavery to mass incarceration, you're not ready to have the conversation. Hmm. You know, that has always stuck with me because I'm like, oh, I I hear people say that, but it's like, I can't do the tracing. You know, sure. I, I sort of could maybe say slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, and then it sort of gets fuzzy. Mm-hmm. You know, could you... Like even when you say like now, like the language maybe has changed, but the narrative is still the same. Like, can you give some examples or or trace the history a little bit of how this stuff remains sort of racist at its core? Even even like the the war on drugs and yeah, yeah crime rates and stuff like that. How are those extensions of 
some of the stuff that to untrained ears sounds more explicitly racist, like Jim Crow or redlining. Yeah, well, and I think it's important to note that at the times, people did not view those things as explicitly racist. And that's the thing, like... That's fascinating. Yeah, right? Like, it didn't change. Like, when we described, like, the three-fifths compromise, that was like, wow, three-fifths of a vote. Like, you know, you used to have no vote, and now you have three-fifths of a vote. Like, that's that's kind of a lot. So I think it's important to note, too, that it's not like at the time when this happened, the whole public was like, (gasps) like, no way. It was like, no, it was very much like what we're doing today. It's, It's the same thing, right? The people who are seeing mass incarceration and not seeing how it's connected to racism or a system, you know, were the same people that didn't think there was this, you know, an issue with slavery, right? So I think that's one important thing to note. So like in terms of when you trace back mass incarceration and starting from slavery and after slavery ended, you had to think about it as it was, a, you know, an economic system, right? You're getting labor for free. Right. And so when that happened, there's a threat of an economic collapse in many ways. And so, so like when your free labor force now becomes expensive or not there anymore. And if the whole economic system is built on that, then yeah, economic collapses. Mm-hmm. Right. And part of the problem was you can say slavery is illegal, but I mean, the amount of states that that, that actually was the case, it took a long time before that was actually true number one number two and the promise was that every black person would get 40 acres and a mule which is like this very important statement because this was the promise right so this was their way of trying to say not only were you slaves but we recognize that if slavery is now illegal and you're on your own like you're going to need capital you're going to need land and so the government said we're going to give you 40 acres and a mule to start that and they never did that and You know, a lot of people, when they talk about reparations, they often go back to that statement to say, we never got our 40 acres and a mule. And so, number one, they didn't change the actual built environment of black people in America, right? Like that didn't actually change. So that was one big issue. And so what ended up happening is a lot of people would still become indentured servants, right? Like they would Mm -hmm. get paid some really small amount, but they didn't have a choice. Like, well, where am I going to go now? Right, right. And, you know, not only that, but there's actually this idea that when someone was, you know, a slave, that the slave owner actually needed to maintain their health to some degree, because again, this is their free labor. But so what ended up happening is to shift that form of labor is then they went to what's called convict leasing, which is essentially they started creating a whole bunch of laws that very much targeted black people, whether it's, you know, you're out on the streets past a certain time of night, you know, you don't have a certain kind of identification, you're homeless, you know, whatever it is, you know, a whole bunch of laws that essentially targeted black people and started to incarcerate them. And you say, and, you say targeted black mm-hmm. people because it's like, how would they have a home at this point? Because Exactly. Okay. And so then people are incarcerated. And then this whole idea of convict leasing was that people who are incarcerated would then work for free. So, mm-hmm. I mean- so a new sla- a new slavery. Exactly, yeah. right? It's just just shifting. It's finding a new way to accomplish the same thing. And this was really run by the cities, right? Like the cities would use this labor to build roads and, you know, buildings or whatever and it, you know, they weren't getting paid. They were it was another form of slavery. Mm-hmm. And so throughout the years, you know, and again, this would take much longer. And if if you are interested in a much more in-depth version of this, you can read The New Jim Crow. That's Michelle Alexander, right? Yeah, Michelle Alexander. And then you can also read Rethinking Incarceration by Dominique Gilliard. And that's published out of Ivy Press. And uh, he's a pastor and a historian and does a great job of kind of weaving in theological and faith themes through that. But he also does the same thing and kind of traces it. I think it's so cool when people give the publisher of a book. Oh, yeah. That's when you're next level. It's next like level. not only the yeah. author, but the publisher. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, and so it evolves into the explosion rate for incarceration really happens with like this war on crime and the war on drugs, starting from, you know, FDR and going to Nixon, Reagan, and this idea of saying, you know, we want to eliminate crime from the street. And then now you can go back and say, well, like, okay, well, crime, why is that happening? And that is traced back to 300 years before of never getting the 40 acres in a mule. And of course, people, it's it's not like people overnight just change and they're like, well, now I like black people, right? It's like, no, they still continue to show all those kinds of things of looking down on them. And so mass incarceration kind of booms with this explosion of targeting communities of color to say that this is like a war on drugs. And, you know, just ways to describe that of, you know, for instance, crack cocaine, which is, you know, in powdered form is no different than, you know, crack rocks. It's the same active ingredient. There's no difference. It's not like one is stronger than the other. It's all yeah. based on, you know, the dosage in which you use it. But the idea that sentencing for crimes related to having possession of powdered cocaine, which is what predominantly white people were using, was 18 times less than the sentencing of someone who was using the rocks, which was predominantly what black people were using. Yeah. And so we saw the sentencing disparity for a really long time and people made the case that like one was stronger than the other. And that, that just wasn't true. That was. And so you saw people, you know, for instance, if you got caught with a certain amount of cocaine, you could have 18 times of that powdered cocaine and you'd get the same sentence. So that's crazy. You know, there's a whole bunch of other things, but the idea is to really trace it. So I have a question. And I don't think that this question necessarily matters. The answer to this question is not, um, oh, yeah, now we really know that this is racism or not. But is the argument for things like the drug disparity, that people were sort of wrong on purpose, is the argument that if the reasoning was said that it's because the drug is stronger, was it that people knew that it wasn't and then still made the policies anyway because they knew it was in black communities? Because there's Katie and I watched the 13th. And, you know, at the end, they give some statistics. And I think it's like 40% of incarcerated people are black men, I think. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it's like, that's a number that just is like, it's way out of whack. 11% of the general population. Yeah, 11% of the general population, 40% of the prison population. So that's just, okay, how do you explain that number? What we're doing right now is walking through, well, let's look at this historical context and explain it that way, uh, which I feel very compelled by. But I, one thing I've had hard time with myself is that I keep getting caught up on like trying to intellectualize things. And part of me wonders, is there more that I'm going to know in terms of like the foundations of the argument that will make me even more convinced? Or do I really know enough? And I actually don't need to know if there was explicit corruption. It's enough to know that there's even implicit corruption. So I guess, mm -hmm. but my my question is, to the best of your knowledge, like in those scenarios where a certain policy radically affected black people more than affected white people, is the argument that that was explicitly done so that way? You know, because even in the 13th, mm -hmm. there's that the Nixon aide who's like, no, we're going to do this to target black people. So that seems pretty explicit. And so it sort of makes sense to me what you're saying of the narrative of black people and white people's conscience. One thing that was really compelling from that documentary was the impact of Birth of a Nation, the Griffith film, you know? It created this sort of myth of a of the dangerous black man, which still feels quite strong. That's not a policy. That's a a story of what we believe about people. Right. That even if you objectively don't believe it, it's been in our country for so long. You know. Right. So it makes sense to me that neutral policies could be made racist by that continuing narrative. Or I guess it could make sense to me that there is more of a conspiratorial corruption. Mm -hmm. But it's like, I don't know what the argument is that's being made. Yeah, I think it's both of them. It's not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, totally, yeah. I think you, you, know, you hit the nail on the head. There are times when it is 
explicit and like you said that aid was like a great example of that um and then there are times when it just becomes you know certain narratives embedded and the systems are perpetuated and people can be like unaware that this is what they're supporting or going on right and i think you know ibram kindy's idea of he essentially describes that you're it's kind of a binary right it's either you're anti-racist or you're racist yeah you know i think that's really hard for people to hear but the concept of saying like i'm just not racist that's racist right that there isn't this kind of sense of being neutral and i think partially it has to do with just like the way our systems work is that if you just kind of be like i'm just gonna let them go Mm -hmm. they're gonna go towards these racist ways and so Having to actively be anti-racist means to, you know, to very explicitly address it, whether or not it was the origin of it was, you know, sinisterly designed like a lot of them are. But, you know, sometimes it's sometimes it's not. And I think it's helpful for people to kind of think about it, that it's like, you know, it's not it was just one person that's like, I have this master plan to use the prison, you know, industrial complex to control all black people. It's a whole bunch of things. It's some of that. It's some of, you know, movies and narratives and Mm -hmm. the the way crack was portrayed. And, you know, all of these things kind of come together to form this very complex system. So it's not just one thing, uh, but it certainly is a part of it. A lot of times it is, you know, explicitly someone wanting to do that or groups of people wanting to do that. But um, yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful to me because I think there's part of me that's like, I think it's part of my impulses as a follower of Jesus. Like the process of being self-skeptical is not a foreign one to me. Like we talked about at the beginning, like the prayer of like, show me if there's any grievous way in me. That's not something foreign to my life. Mm -hmm. And so like, as we talked about as a culture, understand that the way that you've experienced this world as a white man is not the way that everyone's experienced this world. And so just that sort of idea to me makes a lot of sense. It's like, oh, I'm sure that that's the case. And so the process of being self-skeptical is not super difficult for me. What I have found difficult is knowing where to like land as what I think is true and what's real. Right. And so sometimes when I hear the arguments of racist policies or even this straight line from slavery to mass incarceration, it's like, well, that's a very, very, very compelling story. But I think there's part of me, I don't know if it's a simple mindedness, but like, I think maybe even the way that movies have taught me to think about racism is that there is a racist person at the core who hates black people. Right, right. And so I think in the absence of that, sometimes it feels hard to be like, the story being told is the right story. It's a very compelling story. And I find myself being confused. Why am I having these like intellectual holdups? You know, of like being able to fully affirm like, yes, this is what I think happened. And I think part Mm -hmm. of it, you know, I was talking to a police friend of mine and uh, he has a deep heart for justice and is also a policeman. And so he realizes like some days I'm tired, sometimes I'm hungry. And it's like, that's not an excuse for making mistakes, but just cops are humans and bad things happen from human beings. And so he sees these things much more as like individual failures of policemen. Yet I've been sort of going through this process of learning more about it being a more systemic thing. And it's actually not based just on if you Mm -hmm. don't like the black person, but it's just the whole system is um, constructed that way. And, you know, at the protests, you see lots of signs of like the system is not broken. It's doing exactly what it was meant to be doing. But like, oh, it's so hard to wrap my mind around that because it's like that would require conspiracy in my mind. I don't know if the argument requires me to think that, that there's explicitly racist policies or practices. Well, yeah. And and one thing I was going to say, too, to that is in the work that I do in in public health and, you know, I, I apply the scientific method. And so one of the things I sometimes hear is or I see it all the time on Facebook as someone will be like, prove systematic racism. Yes, 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 yeah. Yeah. And uh, I know it might sound like semantics, but no one but mathematicians prove anything. You never prove anything 
thing in science. What you do is you conduct tests, you have a theory, you have a hypothesis, and you have with some level of certainty or you, you have evidence that suggests something. Yeah. And what we do is we often collect from a whole bunch of different sources. And especially when dealing with something like racism and in public health, you know, public health, we're talking about so many different systems that are at play. So, you know, to give you one example is like the black maternal mortality rate is, you know, some estimates like three times higher than white women. And this is after controlling for socioeconomic status, location, education status. I mean, a whole bunch of things that they control for. And they still see this extreme inequity and disparity. And so when you start to then understand, well, why is that happening? What causes that? There's a whole bunch of factors, right? There very well could be a racist doctor who does not like black people. And so when they come in, he doesn't treat them the same that he treats right. white patients. Uh, there could be one doctor who, and this is very common and is very well described in the literature that, and this dates back for a while, that black people don't feel pain as much as white people. You know, they believed it was a biologically founded and proven thing. Mm -hmm. Most people don't believe that now, but they still act as if they do. So for instance, prescribing rates of pain medications for black people, if you look at like a certain type of of surgery or something like that is much less than those that are prescribed to white individuals. So we still mm -hmm. have this mentality that black people don't feel pain as much or, mm -hmm. you know, we don't prescribe them pain medications as much. So there could be that. Then there's just the hospital system. You're thinking about insurance and you're thinking about transportation to get to the hospital. You're thinking about social support. I mean, there's a whole bunch of factors. And so yeah. we try to build a case through all of the evidence and looking at all of it together. So I think it's helpful. Like when someone asks me to prove systematic racism, I think that's just it's a faulty question to begin with. You don't prove these kinds of things. Like, you know, if someone says, I love you and I'm like, prove it to me, it's like, mm -hmm. You know, there's certain things that I can show you that I've done. Sometimes it's things that I've said. You don't prove it. You can make a case that I do love you, right? I've done this <laughs> and that. But it's yeah. not like the one time I drove you to the airport. So that's what shows me that you yeah. love me. You know, it's a whole bunch of things. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I think that does diagnose me. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's that I feel like the cost is so high to like just get on board with this narrative. It's like I want more evidence, you know, which is yeah. exactly what I diagnose in people when they are sort of losing their faith. Sure. There's part of you that just doesn't want this to be true, you mm -hmm. know, because you don't want to give up X, Y or Z. You don't want to start living like a Christian. And so there is an active agent in you wanting it to not be true. And so you so work at it to not be true. Right. And so I feel like I'm in this weird spot to get biographical again. I feel like I want to be a person of justice, you know, and yet I feel the burden of proof from the marginalized voices in my own heart. I feel myself saying, yeah, well, like I would love more proof. Like I would love more yeah. actual proof. And I feel how little proof that is needed from people trying to not explain away, but give a, a few bad apples kind of argument. Right. There's probably it's like, oh yeah, I guess that is pretty reasonable. One of my favorite concepts I learned in my social psychology class in mm -hmm. Davis was this idea of the fundamental attribution error that human beings tend to attribute to themselves or to the groups that they're a part of. They attribute everything to their circumstances. So if I show up late to something, I think, oh, it's because I, I hit that red light or I was driving behind that slow driver. There's these mm -hmm. circumstantial reasons why things are the way that they are or why I did the wrong thing. And we tend to attribute to other people or other groups things based on their character. So if you were late today, I would have said, you're just such, like, you're so inconsiderate. Your character is that you are a late person versus myself. It's like, I attribute it to my circumstances. And it's right. like, I do wonder, it's like, as a white man, I am, I am in a privileged group. And so I am an insider to that group. And so it's easier for me to attribute malice of my own group 
to circumstances. Oh, it's like, oh yeah, that was a really hard situation for the police. Right. Even if I don't want that to be where I come down, it's like, that's certainly a thought that I have. And anyway, it's like, I feel how easy it is for me to, or the, the psychological cost of believing things are just circumstantial, mm-hmm. feels so much less. It'd be great to turn a little bit to just thinking theologically, just because you and I are both believers in Jesus and living through this moment that tend to just think things. You know, you hear things and sort of wonder, well, how does that fit with our story? I'd love to talk about Black Lives Matter. It feels like some Christians I've heard being hesitant to use the phrase Black Lives Matter because they say that the the organizational elements of Black Lives Matter are sometimes not the nonviolent or peaceful system that Christians mm-hmm. would would espouse and th- because there's some perceived danger of like aligning ourselves with the Black Lives Matter organizations that we're not going to use the phrase and this has just sounded very strange to me over the last few weeks and I think it's because of this and I, I want to pitch this to you and see what you think but I remember in seminary one of my favorite things that I read like probably like the ratio of impact to pages was the best of all things in seminary like it was like a three or four page article but it just really blew me away it was by Walter Wink and it's called The Third Way Mm-hmm. And and basically, it was an argument about when Jesus says, sort of turn the other cheek, and he also says, mm-hmm. if someone asks for your robe, you strip naked and give them all your clothes. Or if someone mm-hmm. asks you to carry their pack for a mile, you go a second mile. And it sort of looks like he's saying, just lay down to evil. That's the Christian response. Just right. don't do anything. And But what he was saying was something radically different. I'll just read a little bit of it. He says that sure. Jesus is not telling us to submit to evil, but to refuse to oppose it on its own terms. We are not to let the opponent dictate the methods of our opposition. He says that he is urging us to transcend both passivity and violence by finding a third way, one that is at once assertive and yet nonviolent. And so he gives these three examples. He says that the turn the other cheek thing sounds like you're saying just be beaten. But he said, no, actually, if you look closer, if someone strikes you on your right cheek, give them the other cheek as well. And when you imagine someone striking you, you usually imagine a strike with the right hand to the, the left side of the face. Okay, so it's like if you would imagine how would you actually get struck on the right side, it would either be a strike with the left hand, which in that culture with the left hand being used for various bowel um, procedures, it was just it was a no no to do anything with the left hand. So it's like that's probably not what was happening. And if it was, that's very, very, very embarrassing, you know, to be slapped with that hand. So it's either a left hand slap or it's a backhanded right hand slap. Mm -hmm. And the backhanded right hand slap was the slap used from a master to a slave. It was the slap mm-hmm. used to say, hey, you get in line. It was it was not just a physical blow, but it was an emotional blow and a hierarchical mm-hmm. blow of I am above you, I own you, you do what I say. And so when Jesus tells them, no, 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 you turn the other cheek and, and offer them basically your left cheek, it's like, if you're going to do this, you will treat me as an equal. You will not demean me in this mm-hmm. way. And so, uh, yes, it's still, I guess, offering yourself to be, it is demanding you to see me as a human being. I will not be treated like less than a human being. And just the idea of stripping naked, you know, in Rome with Jewish people, like there were these super high taxes for the landowners in order to pay the taxes to Rome, they would make the people living on their land pay inordinate amount of taxes. So they just could never afford it. And so the logical conclusion was like, okay, Jesus says, if you could take into court, basically, and someone says, I've taken everything from you, now give me your robe. This system has produced a situation right now. You have nothing. And so you're just Mm. giving me the last thing that you have. And Jesus says, give him your robe and then strip all the way naked. 
And it said that actually in that culture to see someone naked is actually more sort of shameful than to be the one being naked just mm. in the, the way that the system worked. And so what he was saying is that you're not violently resisting, but you're showing the oppressor the logical conclusion of the oppression that actually sure. it's actually shaming you too. And so anyway, it's these like nonviolent creative protests essentially about oppression that demand to be seen as a human being and also are um, and ultimately right. aimed at restoration, ultimately aimed at dignity for both the oppressor and the oppressed. And so it's just something that really sort of stuck with me. And what I think about Black Lives Matter is that the phrase is genius because it's about as simple as it can be. It's so simple to affirm that Black Lives Matter. You don't have to go outside the Christian worldview to think that. And it right. makes sense within the Christian worldview. And yeah. to put people in the position to argue against it or to rationalize out of it is so genius. It feels sort of like a third way type thing. It's saying, I'm just going to present to you the lowest bar possible. Are you willing to grant it? And yeah. if you're not willing to grant it, then that shows you something about yourself. And now hopefully you're dealing with some of that discomfort. Right. And so anyway, I feel like I've been having this feeling of as white Christians, hey, if we're not willing to fully get on board with the organizations of Black Lives Matter, instead of not saying the words to align ourselves with that, why don't we kind of at the very least be proactive and say, here's what we mean when we say Black Lives Matter, but we want to say it. Does that make sense? It's like it it's, yeah. does feel in that third way kind of style. Yeah. It's like I demand to be seen as a human being and I'm going to do it in a way that actually, if you're unwilling to grant this to me, shows something about you too. Right. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I guess I feel like to me it's a cop out. I think at the end of the day they just they just don't value black lives in the yeah. way they should cuz yeah, so you can argue there are certain things about the movement or you know the organization whatever you want to call it that you may not agree with, but man, if that's the way we're going to live like then you shouldn't be a part of any human organization, right? Like you shouldn't support sports. Yeah. You should cuz I mean every institution I can think of, the church, right? You, yeah. you shouldn't be a part of the church because the church has done some terrible things. Yeah. So I guess for me, I'm much more okay with being like, I'm still a Christian. There are current Christians right now who do some really bad things and I don't agree with those things. And oftentimes, right, my non-Christian friends, when they know that I'm Christian, if they don't know me very well, they're like concerned. They're like, oh, do you, do you believe this? Do you believe that? And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't believe that. I see that differently. So I guess if you really want to, you, you can parse certain things out. I think my concern would be to st- if you're starting from a place of I'm just going to critique everything I don't like about this movement, I don't think you're starting from a good place because yeah. this movement is about the mistreatment and the, the racism that's been experienced by a whole group of people. And that's where your attention and focus should be. Yeah. Um, so like, for instance, you know, people ask me, well, what do you think about the looting and, you know, whatever? And the answer is simple. It's like, I don't think they're good. It's a, yeah. it's a good thing. Like, I don't think anyone is like happy that that's happening it's not a good thing but i just i'm like but i want to focus back on the core issue so i think it it, to me it sounds like it's a distraction from the point but if it helps people it's like yeah you don't have to support every little thing i guess about an institution or a movement but i think at its core what the movement is saying and what it's done is something the church should have done years ago and it Mm -hmm. didn't yeah Um, it's something that i think is in line with god's vision of racial justice more than what the church, you know, the evangelical church has done as a whole. So, yeah, um, yeah that's what I think. Yeah, I think it's interesting how 
much you hear Martin Luther King talked about as like a hero of the Christian faith. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, if, if we're really going to parse stuff, can we use that guy if he's an adulterer? Yeah. If there's things about his life that we don't agree with. And I have had the thought because human systems are fallible and all human systems are fallible. There's probably some fallibility in the Black Lives Matter stuff. But I have this impulse right now. It's like, I think if I'm going to err right now, I think I'd rather err on the side of the, the people crying out oppression. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I would rather choose to say I might be wrong about some things and there might be some parts of this stuff that I'm uncomfortable with, but I don't need to fix all that before I stand up for right. these people are are crying out, you know, and it's interesting how much even I feel this with myself with college life. It's like college life members don't pay for college life. You know, it's like I am mm-hmm. so not worried about like tithers leaving. You know, I do think about like, what about the people who disagree with this? Like, I don't want them to be so uncomfortable that they leave the ministry. And I really fear that. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, okay, well, if that's what's guiding you, Peter, then you've been co-opted by something. And so I do feel like we have trained people that being uncomfortable in the church is a bad thing. And if you get too uncomfortable, you should probably leave. Like, I think that we've sort of trained people that way, which this whole season is kind of helping me see. But okay, so I... The other thing I've been thinking sort of in the theological realm, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it if you've done some of this thinking, but I've thought about these two things that feel sort of distinctly American, that feel like they're at play in this conversation and and also feel different from what we see in the scriptures. And I think the two things are that we think so individually about everything. Mm-hmm. That's no secret. We've talked about this even on this podcast a bunch, just the individualism of the West. Yeah. And then- also, that we have a story about America that it was founded on Christian values. You know, I've sort of played out this thought experiment. If I was an alien dropped into this world and you downloaded all the information of the Christian scriptures into my head, and then you sort of told me the story of America, I've had these two thoughts running through my head. It's like we see in the scriptures communal sin all over the place, you know, and, and it rubs me the wrong way a lot, where it's like, nations and cities are being judged when it's like you sort of think well certainly not everyone in that city was wrong or like when israel gets judged it's like certainly there were some faithful israelites like we sort of think individually but it just seems like the scriptures are not embarrassed about systemic and communal sin or grievances and it just feels like well how do we deal with this issue if it's like i don't feel like i'm the racist that's portrayed in the movies as like the the big bad racist you know And I feel like the invitation from the scriptures is you don't have to be that, but that there might be communal things. There might be communal sin. That stuff is real. And if you were to just follow the lead of the scriptures, it feels like that would be a really great invitation toward lament and invitation toward group repentance. And I guess I, it feels like to fight that because we feel like, well, it's not us individually is actually to fight the direction of sin and repentance and judgment that we see in the scriptures, you know? Um, And then the other thing, which one of the things in reading the Old Testament more is that the scriptures are pretty univocally against empire. And you just go throughout the whole scriptures. Babylon is this prototypical empire. And then Egypt is like the big bad Babylon. And then there's Assyria. And then there's Rome in the New Testament. It's like these things are paradigmatic. 
And the scriptures want to tell a story of like, yes, the empire name might change, but the same pieces of the puzzle are there in every one right. of them. There, there are leaders who want to be seen as gods. There are economic gains that are made through exploitation of human beings. And, right. you know, it's really interesting in Revelation 18, John never mentions Rome. Like he's talking about Rome. He's talking about the oppression that faithful Jesus followers are under the Roman world, but he never states mm. it as Rome. He talks about it as being Babylon. He talks about being Sodom. He talks about it as being paradigmatic empires of like the same empire that we've seen over and over and over again is here again. And we're not going to call it Rome, but it is Rome. And it's almost like he's speaking spiritually, like this is how you recognize what empire is. And there is this really interesting line in Revelation 18, where actually Babylon is finally falling, which is Rome. And the cities and the leaders of the world are crying because Babylon's dying. And like, we can't profit from Babylon anymore. We can't trade with Babylon anymore. And these 30 things that Babylon traded, and it was, you know, gold, silver, beautiful things. And at the end of the list, the last two items listed are bodies. And then he says, that is human lives. And I actually wrote in my Bible when I read it a long time ago, like, oh, that feels like that should be at the front. But, you know, doing some more research, it's like, and actually the critique that's being made at the end is that all of this system is built on the exploitation of human beings. And so it's interesting because what John does is he gives the Greek word for slavery that people just use for slavery, just bodies. These are just bodies. But then he says, these are not just bodies and commodities. These are human lives. And mm. which is like the, the, the Genesis one image of human beings. Mm. And so it's this interesting critique of this is what empires do. They have economic prosperity for some, but at the expense of others. And so if you were to tell right. me the history of America, I have the sneaking suspicion that it would be more like empire than it would be the people of Israel. But I think we have this sense as we read, we sort of naturally put ourselves in the position of the protagonist. And when we're reading, it's like, oh, we identify with Israel. Right. So I don't, it almost feels dangerous to bring up because it's like, I feel like I haven't done enough thinking of like, what does this really mean? But it's definitely something I've been thinking about. It's like, yeah. I don't think anyone would be out of bounds to think we've been warned about empire in the scriptures. Mm. And a lot of the stuff we see in our history feels like what you'd expect to see an empire do. Right. And so again, that also feels like as Christians, if we're reading the story, we should be really ready to repent and really yeah. ready to lament and really ready to be like, I do not want to be on the side of Babylon or Assyria mm. or mm. Egypt or Rome. I want to be on the side of God's people. Yeah. yeah, and this idea of repentance is so important, and I'm not excluded from that just because I'm farther along on this or yeah. because I'm a person of color. Like There are ways in which non-black and non-indigenous people of color benefit from racism and benefit from white supremacy. Like I have. I have benefited from it. And so I'm not excluded from repenting as well and to acknowledge those ways that I've benefited from the empire. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of churches and a lot of pastors and individuals who really shake enough by this and they're engaging in this and maybe they thought about it before but it's so important to start from a place of repentance because it number one repentance acknowledges the wrong that was done it acknowledges the sin and to do it communally like you were saying in the beginning and i think that's what's really hard for people like well i have black friends i've never said anything you know explicitly racist and it's like yeah we have to think about this as this has been a communal sin of our country it's been a communal sin on the part of christians mm -hmm. i mean there's many different communities that we can talk about that we need to repent on behalf of and that we're a part of and it's kind of thinking like you know you know moses leading the israelites out of egypt and so a group of people who started worshiping, you know, take the calf and, and ball and, and then they get lost in the desert for 
you know, for this long period of time. And the people are like, well, I didn't do that. I didn't worship Baal. Like I was still praying to God. Like why do mm-hmm. you know, why didn't he banish them and not us? And it's, I don't think they thought that way because I think they had, you know, an understanding of this communal identity that this was the punishment for, yeah. you know, for the Jewish people. And I think you're right. We've lost that type of communal kind of understanding and bearing of, of sin. But I just think, yeah, repentance is where we need to start. Like we have to repent for the racial sin that we have been engaged in, that we've benefited from, that whether knowingly or unknowingly, but this is, you know, the thing, this is the place to start. Yeah. Yeah. The image of the Day of Atonement mm-hmm. comes to mind. There was a day every year where the high priest would sacrifice a spotless lamb as like, here's the, the punishment due our communal sin. And then they would let free a scapegoat to walk out of the city, walk out of their presence, being like the judgment and the the sin leaves our presence. It's this Mm -hmm. like this yearly thing where they acknowledge we have done things, you -hmm. know, and it feels like something like that. I feel like it's what I long for because even like I pray the Lord's Prayer with Mason every day. I've said that before on the podcast. And every time I get to forgive us our debts, at least in the past couple weeks, I've been sort of praying the same prayer of like, forgive me for the ways that I've participated in this. Forgive us for the ways mm. we participate in this. But I feel like I keep praying it. And so it's like, this part of me, it's like, well, are the debts forgiven? Like I long for a communal response, you know, where it feels like let's, not that we're not going to need repentance again, but let's offer this to God together. And in doing that, acknowledge that we should be better. Mm-hmm. But those are some of the bigger picture meta theological thoughts that are, again, are not. So here are the takeaways of a sermon, but just things that I've been thinking about as I've been trying to process this. And as a Christian leader, trying to think like, what does God's word say? What wisdom is there? And like I said, more often than not, it has felt like the wisdom has had me recognizing our role in this and um, and repenting of it. So that's all I have. Anything else on your mind? Yeah, I guess the last thing I would say is I think this is a time and I do have hope. I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. He's a, Mm -hmm. a writer and he's talked about this idea of hope. And he recently he was interviewed and he was like, I actually have this strange kind of hope right now. And one of the things he commented on is just like when you look at the protests and when you look at, you know, who's been marching, it's like a very multi ethnic multi-generational movement and so i do have hope and i guess my thing is you know when i hear certain things that may be new to me for example the concept of defunding the police there is a difference between defunding and abolishing Abolishing, those are two separate streams of thoughts but you know when i hear those things and when i hear what should we do and and just all that's going on i try to just like pause for a moment one to remember i'm not the recipient of these things i'm not the one like thinking like i'm going out on a drive tonight am i going to be pulled over and and shot by the police that's no longer an exaggeration that's happened enough times that it's a threat that black men and women face and so i try to just step outside of myself for a second and be like this is not about me right now what is going on to really listen to the cries of the oppressed and and then you know if there's if certain policy or something going on i just try to be like all right i'm gonna learn about this thing like yeah i know the idea of defunding police these are really radical concepts for people and I, I understand why and they are even sometimes for me but i'm willing to at least be like well i'm curious like there's some really smart people who i know support this what is it? What does it mean? What does it look like? What is the intent behind it? Uh, I don't know if I support it yet, but I'm going to read about it. I'm going to learn about it. And um, so I guess that's like my encouragement to people is more than just intellectually to do that with their feelings and to do that with their empathy, to just be like, 
I do not understand what is going on. And we can never know what it feels like to have that sort of fear. And so why are people responding this? Where is this rage coming from? And to really listen. And there's some really smart people thinking about this. Let me do my homework of reading up on this and let me be open to being wrong. And I hope that in humility and selflessness that the church can be a leader in this. I don't think it has, but I just, I hope it does. I hope it can be a leader in being like, man, we've screwed things up. We repent and we want to do better and we want to make actual change more than just saying and coming out with a statement and and to really pursue what justice looks like and so yeah that's what i hope people get away from this and i dig it i love what you're saying i feel like it's been an interesting process of like just trying to check my gut reactions like what is my yeah. gut reaction and how might that be different if i was not me right mm-hmm anyway rafiq thanks for your time i feel aware that there's more to talk about Sure. But we tried to have a conversation that moved us forward and helped us see more clearly. And so I appreciate that. And it's good to hear that you have hope. So if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that this is generally the time for our quarantine corner. And often they've been fun and silly and off the wall. And it just feels like today be it'd be nice to lean into the, the moment a little bit. And for you, Rafiq, to give us some recommendation of just some places to start reading, watching, listening. And so that's what's going to be our quarantine corner this week. So Rafiq, what do, you, what do you have for us? Yeah, there's maybe you've seen some online and on Facebook, there's some more like in-depth kind of resource guide lists. And I can maybe send one to Peter. I don't know how it can be connected to the podcast if I can go to a link or something. But I think I mentioned these two books before, but I think from a a Christian perspective, there are two really great books, especially if you're a little bit newer to the conversation. The book Beyond Colorblind by Sarah Shin, excellent book to read. She's a Korean American woman and she she just gives a great description of what is race, what is racism and does it in in a very great way and has a ton of anecdotes and stories. Yeah. And then the other one is uh, Rethinking Incarceration by Dominique Gilliard. And that one is focused on a particular topic, that of mass incarceration, but in it, you know, outlines just a ton of really important things for us to recognize in our history. And then Abraham Kendi's How to Be Anti-Racist and his his other book, um, Stamped from the Beginning, is also two great books to kind of give a description specifically of issues related to black Americans. And so, you know, those are just a couple of starters, but, you know, there's a, a lot of other larger lists, but those are, I'd say that's a great starting place for people to check out um, if you're a reader. Thank you, Rafiq, for your time. And yeah, Absolutely. Uh, Thanks for having me, man. It's, uh, it's a blessing to, to come back to college life in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, welcome back. All right, that is it for your pod and your staff. A huge thank you to Rafiq for waking up early and having this conversation with me. You didn't have to take the time to help us start a conversation here, but you did, and we're grateful. And did you notice something different? We had new music for season two. Of course, Josh Paskey and Kyle Jung were at it again, and so we say thank you to you guys. A reminder that we've got Summer Style coming up this Tuesday for anyone who's in Davis, and also that you've got two weeks to watch Just Mercy, so you can get the most out of our first Podcorn Theology conversation. And to close, I want to read from the prophet Amos, just to keep us on our toes. It says this, says, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Away with the noise of your songs, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. And so, dear College Life, we hope to love you more than we simply seek to comfort you. We'll see you in two weeks.